Dr. Bonds. It's so great to see you. Hey there, Karis. It's good to see you too. I'm so glad you're uh, joining us for Unapologetically Black Unicorns. You are a person that I've known for quite some time. I think our first meeting must have been through NAMI Urban LA. And you're one of the few African-American psychiatrists that are out there. So anytime I see one, I'm like, oh, look, look, it's a Black guy. And he's a psychiatrist. This is so cool. So tell me how you got into the work of psychiatry. Well, first of all, I'm going to say, call me Curly. Yes, I am a doctor and all that. But, you know, we go way back, like I said. So my trajectory towards where I am right now is through lived experience of a family member. I'll be quite honest. When I was in high school, my sister, who has given me permission to talk about this, developed a serious mental illness. And she was a college freshman. She'd gone off to a small liberal arts school, was actually pre-med at the time, and was just working very, very hard, burning the candle at both ends. And not unsurprisingly, she had uh, some stress from that. And she was staying up all hours, and it triggered a manic episode, which sleep deprivation can do. Everybody in the family now recognizes what happened, but at the time, it was quite frightening, really scary. But the thing that it taught me was that mental illness is very treatable. It affects all shapes and kinds and types of people, including loved ones. Fortunately, her brand of illness was the type that responds to medication and therapy and support. And I would say while our family wasn't wealthy, we were we were comfortable. So we had insurance. Both of my parents were working. She was insured. And so we were able to navigate the system. But what I saw later in my career when I went off to medical school and had decided that, gee, I have to find a specialty, was that, like you said, there aren't very many African-American psychiatrists. And psychiatry just seemed to be a specialty that a lot of doctors steered away from because they were afraid. They didn't know how to interact mm-hmm. with folks with psychosis or serious depression or people who were trying to kill themselves. It was sort of like you were not necessarily thought to be less lesser than, but I did have several comments from professors and others say, why don't you want to be a real doctor? And for me, psychiatry was one of the closest specialties of medicine that I'd seen up front because I had seen what it is like to be in the hospital when the doctor comes on rounds. I'd seen the effects of these medications and treatments. And I also knew how to relate to someone just from that experience of having grown up with her because for a long time, she probably had undiagnosed symptoms. And I'll just say that she's a loving, sweet person. She's brighter than I am, to be honest, but she was not always the easiest person to deal with. And so I developed some talents of being able to listen, being able to be patient, knowing when to step away. And I think all of that, I I do give her a lot of credit for my career because I recognize psychiatry as a legitimate specialty. And during the course of medical school, you know, you rotate through everything from OBGYN to general surgery. And psychiatry was where I kind of hit my sweet spot. You know, I went onto that board and it didn't intimidate me. I really liked it. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, uh, kudos to you for a couple of things. One is, I'm glad you said that um, as you were talking about your sister, that you had obtained permission to use her story uh, to illustrate kind of what the possibilities are for people, as well as how uh, you got into the profession. Um, I think a lot of times, family members are concerned about how can they share their loved one's story and do it in such a way that protects the loved one as well as um, that there's some permission to talk about their their life, right? It's not kind of an open book all the time. And then um, the other thing I heard you um, say, which is um, 
um, if people could have seen my face, it was one of, oh my goodness, that there's stigma within the profession of uh, medicine for a psychiatrist. And I don't know that many of us understand um, the tough road that psychiatrists have to endure if people don't think they're real, they're real. Right. You are real, unapologetically black uniform, but you are real. (laughs) So one of the first times I saw you speak, and I think it was at an American Psychiatric Association conference, maybe um, AACP, which is the community psychiatrist, um, you were you were using the word recovery. And it was actually one of the first times I heard a psychiatrist talk about recovery. Um, And so you know, are you seeing shifts now in psychiatry and mental health care as a whole, understanding what recovery kind of really means uh, for people, especially those that have uh, diagnoses or symptoms that are seen as quite serious? That's an excellent question. By the way, I have to give you some credit. At the beginning, you were telling me about the things that you thought of me, but you're an advocate who I followed and have admired over the years because I think your ability to talk about these things and educate staff members and institutions is really key. And I think that's led the way towards us understanding these things better. I mean, I've come to learn that recovery is a journey, not a destination. So for all of the listeners out there, I think it it's different stages. For some people, recovery means they're symptom-free, they're able to live without necessarily engaging in treatment. I was told at one point that the average number of times that a person sees a psychiatrist is about eight, and that's lifetime. Of course, there are other people who need to see a psychiatrist once a week or more indefinitely. So there's a whole range of how impairing these illnesses are There's also a whole range of how responsive they are to treatments. Some people have treatment-resistant conditions where you can try multiple medication trials. They go in and out of hospital or jail. And those folks are, I think, the exception rather than the rule. As a, a person who works for the county mental health department, we have a lot of folks out there who struggle to get access to treatment. And even when they do, they don't always respond. And sometimes that's because the treatment isn't culturally tailored to their needs their resources, their life experience, their language even sometimes, or just understanding who they are as a person. So the way I think about recovery is that it takes a village. It really takes not just psychiatrists. I mean, as good as I might be and as smart as I am about prescribing a medication, the person doesn't believe that this illness exists or that it affects them or that it's the cause of their problems then I'm not going to be effective as a physician. So I rely on other team members who might be able to spend more time, you know, the therapists, social workers, psychologists, peer advocates, who can tell them, you know, if you don't take this medication, you're going to flunk out of school, or you're going to lose your job, or you're going to lose your family, um, your custody, right? Those sorts of things I think sometimes people need to hear, but they also need to hear the stories of recovery from people who are out there who've lived experience and who've experienced it firsthand. Yeah, I um, really like the partnership that, you know, we've been able to develop as, you know, me as a advocate, activist, unapologetically black uniform, all of those things, but also, um, you know, trying to understand, well, what is the role of the psychiatrist? What are some of the difficulties that psychiatrists have in being able to do the work that they came into the field to do? And a lot of times there may be, which I didn't understand before, there may be policy or or federal guidelines that sometimes can inhibit folks from doing the work in the the way that they want to do it. So, um, you know, having enjoyed getting to know you and work with you and continue to 
do that advocacy work as well. And you've worked in some really interesting places. You know, we didn't write down your work with in jail mental health, which um, again was a time when I was like, you were doing some really innovative things related to, I think it was helping folks who had um, been incarcerated. First of all, I think you were doing something related to the residents and residents being able to have access to learning about what jail mental health is. Because I think a lot of times too, we have this picture in our mind of how people are and not thinking about, hmm, what's it really like to work with folks who um, are having those kind of struggles and have landed in jail for all sorts of reasons. And then secondarily, helping people to find themselves not as the you are not your illness, you are not a criminal, you are not this, but look at you, you are somebody who deserves having an education. You are a person who whose education may have been interrupted because of all of these things. And I think when you were working with jail mental health, you set up some programs that weren't about, you know, go to the support group, but you called them classes so that people could feel like they were getting like going for education. Am I recalling that right? You are. In fact, I'm surprised because you're, I'm having to dredge up some things from the deep, deep back memory. And I have to say, working at the jail was both the most difficult thing in my life, but also one of the most meaningful places where I've ever worked because you have people there who don't, they don't have anything often. There's a gentleman, Father Greg Boyle, who works with homeboys, and he used to always say they never had a first chance. Mm -hmm. If someone's born into foster care, they have mistreatment or neglect in their background, they never got access to good education, they never had good health care, and they wind up sometimes out on the streets running with the wrong crowd. And they're very, I would say, impressionable, and sometimes they get the wrong types of influences. So what I did at the jail, and it wasn't just me, again, it was a whole team working with um, the leadership, we felt that we needed to have in-reach, not just from mental health clinicians, but we needed to have Groups like um, Homeboy Agencies, which Industries, which is a group that does reentry work, help people to get back into the job market, give them some training and job skills. But we also wanted to have folks come to help them if they needed to get parenting skills. For example, women who were at the women's jail, if they wanted to be reunited with their kids, they needed to know how do I parent because some of them that's not something you're born knowing. There was also people that needed to complete a GED, and then there were also just knowing life skills. How do you have a difficult conversation with someone without blowing up and getting into an altercation physically. So all of those things were part of what we thought of as sort of a rehabilitation mode. I mean, I think in our country, jail has become, at least in L.A. County, at times, the de facto psychiatric hospital. I mean, people who know L.A. know well that it's the largest inpatient collection of folks in the country in terms of jail mental health. I think at one point, 2,000 people with mental illness were inside of our jail, which they had no business being there in the first place. They were there because of bad choices made often when they were not treated or undertreated with a serious mental illness. So the jail was a destination that I landed at after being a county employee. And there was a program that closed down at a hospital where I was the director. And they came to me saying, hey, we need you to work at the jail. And at first I thought, oh, no, not me. You know, it's locked down and it's scary. There are dangerous, violent people there. But when I went and toured and I saw those who were there with mental illness, they looked just like the people that I had seen, say, when I worked at a university hospital. I was at UCLA and I thought, the only thing that really differentiates these people from the folks who are in more affluent communities is that they didn't have the benefit of the doubt. When they came and the police looked at what they were doing, you know, if they were running in traffic or doing other things. It was viewed as a crime as opposed to a symptom. 
And where did they take them? Rather than to a hospital because they didn't have jail or they couldn't really advocate for themselves. They ended up in jail. And some of them, it becomes a repetitive cycle. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of guys that I met there who they identified their jail psychiatrist as their doctor because they've spent so much time there. And it was the one place where they got guaranteed access to care. There's a constitutional right to care and treatment when you're incarcerated, which isn't true if, say, you're living out on Skid Row or in a tent on the street somewhere. You know, you're not guaranteed treatment. Right, right. And, you know, at one point, too, you were a transplant psychiatrist, which I also found really interesting interesting because of some family members, you know, who have um, heart disease in my family, not transplant level, but um, certainly I could see the emotional impact on heart disease and having different types of surgery, especially um, bypass surgery, how it affect them emotionally after the surgery. I had never known that there was such a thing as a transplant psychiatrist. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, so glad to know there is one. But so in, in, tell me a little bit about that role and um, how it also shaped how you think about the, the work that you do and how you do practice. Well, let's see. So the general overarching term for transplant psychiatry, it falls, it's like a subspecialty of a subspecialty within psychiatry. And the bigger subspecialty is what's known as consultation liaison psychiatry. And those are the psychiatrists that generally work outside of typical mental health centers or clinics or hospitals. So instead of working at the psychiatric hospital, you would work in the main medical center. And at one point, this specialty was kind of dubbed psychosomatic medicine. And it gets at the mind-body connection. I I never liked that word, and I'm glad that we finally formally changed it. But um, during my time in training, it actually became a board certification that you could get in psychosomatic medicine. I did not choose to do that because I I had this aversion to school once I got my medical degree. I thought, I'm done with diplomas. But anyway, so consultation liaison medicine incorporates psychosomatics and, and transplant. And what people don't know is that Almost every major transplant center, and I was working at one at the time, has to have a committee that does sort of two things. They do preoperative evaluations to see who gets on the list. And it's really about eligibility and also willingness and ability to to survive, because if we're going to give you a precious resource, because organs are still short supply. So you would do this life-saving intervention. But because of rejection and the type of care that an organ needs after transplant, you want to make sure the person can take care of it. So the first front end is evaluation preferably. You want to make sure the person isn't, say, still using drugs or that they're not drinking too much. If they are overweight and they won't survive because of obesity, you need to help them get onto a behavioral plan where they lose weight and are exercising. And then you need to make sure that they're mentally sound enough to be able to take care of themselves. And the approach that our team took at UCLA was that mental illness should not be an exclusionary criteria. In fact, some of the work that I did then, which I'm most proud of, was looking at what was called the alternate donor list. People who were older could actually survive being given a heart, but the best hearts didn't necessarily go to them. So we came up with an option that if you're over a certain age, instead of not getting a transplant, you would get a heart that other people didn't want, hearts that were like were infected with hep C or something. And those folks actually did just as well as others. And the same thing is true of those with mental illness. If you have good supports and you have good medication treatment and therapy, those folks had outcomes that were just as good as those folks that didn't have the problem. So there's the pre-op assessment, and then there's also the post-operative follow-up. The biggest thing that you do to prevent rejection is you give steroids. Now, I'm not talking about anabolic steroids that people use to be buffed up and, and all that. Who make, mm-hmm. You've heard of roid rages probably. Yeah. But the steroids they give, they do cause some mood changes. In fact, prednisone 
is the biggest medication that they use, and it causes people to get often depressed. It can cause mania. I mean, it can cause a lot of different psychiatric syndromes, plus just being, like you mentioned, with your relative on bypass. If you're on a bypass machine, people can have many strokes. They just don't always have the same level of cognition. So after the fact, they often need to see psychiatry, and these are folks who sometimes had no psychiatric history or symptoms. And so as that um, transplant psychiatrist to the cardiac team primarily, I did that for about 10 years. I would say the last point that it did for me, it gave me a healthy perspective on how life is just temporary and it is fragile. So I was working with folks who were on pretty much death's door and then they had life-saving intervention and to be able to watch people through that journey. And unfortunately, there was the other side of it. Not everybody made it through. I mean, I saw mm-hmm. folks who went through one, two or three transplants and still didn't make it, but just kind of being there, holding their hand for pro- proverbially as a psychiatrist is something that really gave me a, a different outlook on life. Wow. And what did it do as far as really making that connection between the mind-body connection? Oh, okay. Because, you know, treating the mind and treating, well, treating the, and I don't want to say that mental illness is just the mind, but you know what I'm saying. Well, sometimes this is, this is sort of old school, so I'm dating myself, but we used to talk about say depression as being endogenous or exogenous. The endogenous depressions are the ones that just are due to something internal that's happening. It's like your brain chemistry. Whereas an exogenous depression is something that comes about as a result of interacting with your environment. Like you have an end of a relationship or someone dies or you get you know, held up at gunpoint. So with the mind-body connection, you come to realize that both happen. You know, Sometimes because you don't have good perfusion, if your heart isn't getting enough blood up to the brain. And there's always was this debate between me and the cardiothoracic surgeons, which organ is more important. Of course, they say, well, your heart, because if your heart gives out, then you're going to die. And I would say, well, your heart's just a support structure for your brain, because how many people would want to have a functioning heart, but no brain? I mean, both are really important. But let's just say that you don't get enough blood flow, then you're going to have delirium, you're going to have other types of things from low blood flow to the brain. The same thing is true If you're doing something that causes you to have more heart trouble, like if you can't modify your fluid intake, you can't restrict your salt intake because you have a behavioral problem like compulsive eating due to depression or something, it's it's really hard. So the two definitely interact. And like I said, the medications sometimes cause symptoms in one direction or another. And it, it was just fascinating to see how sometimes just correcting things like the ventilator setting could make agitation go away wow. because people were, you know, so showing evidence of brain hypoperfusion or other problems like a reaction to a medication and you fix that. So you always have to start with the medical, I think, in psychiatry. We are doctors ultimately, which just differentiates us from the other specialties that we're trained to be able to assess. You know, could this be to organ failure? Could it be due to an illness like an infection or cancer? Because all of those things carry with them some psychiatric syndromes. Wow. And, and, you know, as you're talking about um, some of the work that you've, you know, been doing all along, I'm always, you know, curious about the disparities for Black and Brown communities and, you know, how we um, ensure that, you know, folks of color um, in particular are thinking about their mental health and well-being, both in the mind-body connection, because we know that, uh, you know, access to care, access to quality care, access to care that's culturally aligned with the with the person's needs, both on the mental health side and the physical health side, they're just these huge disparities. So what are some things that we could be thinking about as far as our communities of color? 
Wow. I don't know where to start. I mean, we have to kind of break this down a little bit, so I'm going to try. I would say that we used to think that most disparities were just a product of socioeconomic status, but we do also know that there are some innate cultural differences. If you think about what's going on in the world right now, there are some, I would say, fairly well-educated, well-off African-Americans who just have chosen not to get the vaccine because of trust in a system. I would also say that one of the disparities in healthcare is that research doesn't focus as much on people of color. And part of it is because look at who's doing the research. They're looking at communities and people that look like them often. And that's what drives their decisions about, am I going to do an investigation of anorexia nervosa and upper middle class women? Or am I going to do an investigation of heroin abuse for folks who are on skid row? So if you think about it, a lot of times what drives medical decision making is how we're educated. If you look at doctors across the country, psychiatrists in particular, only about 2% of psychiatrists are African-American. So I think about LA County where our local psychiatric society, the Southern California Psychiatric Society has about a thousand members roughly. And so when you think about, okay, well, we're going to have a meeting of all the black psychiatrists. They could fit in my living room, you know, for all of LA, 10 million people. So there aren't enough of us. And I would say that a lot of times people do tend to go back to communities where they were raised or where they're comfortable to work. So in terms of like clinics, getting staff who want to work in underserved communities or communities of color, often you don't necessarily get symmetry. You're not going to get a psychiatrist to understand you. And I don't pretend to be knowledgeable about all things black, but I would say that someone who comes in, be they from Compton or Baldwin Hills, they might feel more comfortable talking to someone who they feel understands what the challenges are that their families and that they themselves have faced. Mm -hmm. But then in terms of the other disparities, I would say they start early on. They start with what type of grade school education do you have? Do you have role models in your life of people who were physicians or nurses or neurosurgeons? Do you see that around you? Does it even feel like an option? But I remember going to Africa for my first trip, and I was flying from Rwanda to Uganda. And what kind of blew me away wasn't that I was going to, you know, the hinterland, but it was really the pilot was black. The flight attendants were black. The people who were taking my bags were black. The people who were in the finance department, you know, I looked around and I thought, and there are these men in suits who are doing business trips and they were all black. And it was sort of like, I thought if I had seen that growing up, it would have been like, okay, the options are limitless. So Mm -hmm. I was, I know that some um, Jewish individuals have something called birthright where they all get to go back Mm -hmm. to Israel. And I keep thinking, And I believe that there are some folks in the community like Nancy Carter, who's talked about this, having the option of African-American kids being able to see the culture that at least we're descendants of, not necessarily that we have a strong connection to them, but being able to experience that is, I think, very profound. Even if it comes to going to the pediatrician or the psychiatrist and they kind of understand you and look like you. Oh, yeah. I've I've been to the motherland as well, um, to Senegal and Gambia years ago. And it's so funny, you know, I was telling somebody about that trip and I was uh, telling them about the door of no return and going back uh, to, mm-hmm. to uh, you know, the Western part of Africa. And oh, how yeah. I had, yeah, I had really planned that year to go to Paris. And I was, you know, dead set. No, I'm going to Paris. And I kept telling my parents, no, I'm going to Paris. Thank you very much. Have a nice time. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, well, no, no, no. I saved up. I take my vacation. I mean, I'm an adult at this point. They can't tell me what to do. But they said, no, this is a trip that we need to take as a family and kind of got forced into it a little bit. I mean, you know, I'm always I'm always down for a trip. But um, so I said, okay, okay, I'll go. 
And um, just, you know, remember very much um, like you did, you know, when we were kind of getting ready to land, I was like in tears on the plane. And I never thought that would happen to me because I was like, most of the most of the trip, I was like, I'm supposed to be in Paris right now. But uh, as we were kind of coming in, and I could see the land and, you know, start to see the little dots of the people, I was like, wow, this is where we came from. Not not exactly this spot, you know, I don't know if we're from Senegal or not, but um, certainly um, from the continent. And um, everywhere you look, there are people who look like you. Yeah. Um, so, and that's so powerful. And I'm an army brat. So, you know, much of my life, people didn't look like me. Um, and, and here I kind of melted into the crowd versus stood out in the crowd. Right. <laughs> so it was a really, really different um, and very, very powerful experience. So um, some of the other things that, um, you know, I wanted to make sure we, we touched on, especially B.B. Moore Campbell Minority Mental Health Month. You knew B.B. Moore Campbell. I did indeed, yes. I met her along with what I called, or they called themselves the Nami Mommies. And mm-hmm. they were women who were forces of nature, and they still are who advocate and educate about mental health problems and how they look differently and present differently in our community. In fact, at a NAMI LA, Urban LA meeting, you'll hear people talk about what to do when you engage with the police. That's not necessarily something that you would hear from other NAMI groups across the city because they don't have that same experience. You know, when they call out, it's a different response. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, So Bibi was a, an amazing person a noted author. In fact, I think my first introduction to her was my sister, who was an avid reader, would always have a book around. And she had had several of BB's books on the shelf. I never read them because they were like girl books. But I have to say, oh, wait, that... whoa, 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 whoa. Let's say they weren't on my reading list. They, they, oh, they were okay. very much, I think, not necessarily young romance novels, but they were what a lot of the young black girls were reading. And it was okay. popular. And, you know, so it just wasn't on my radar. And I, I read, but I read other things. So I will say that I knew of her. And then I met her. It was like, wow, not only can this woman write, because she was a best-selling author, she could also speak and she mm-hmm. could move people. She was just, I mean, the word elegance comes to mind because, you know, she just kind of moved gracefully through crowds and through difficult situations that I saw her unfortunately have to engage in sometimes with, you know, loved ones and others who had problems. And mm-hmm. she was always calm. She just seemed sort of unflappable. And it's like one of her sayings, and I think her husband Ellis still says this, you know, something along the lines of, don't fault the cracks in life is how the light comes in. So, you know, there are things that go wrong. Um, It's really just important to be able to look at there's hope and there's optimism. And I think she did a fantastic job of instilling that in people. Yeah, she was quite a force of nature. I mean, I got to meet her later on in her career. I think it was after the publication of 72 hour hold, um, which chronicles the um, somewhat made up story, but also the you know, sort of fictional story, but also based on real experiences of what it's like when you have a loved one who is not doing well, you're trying to get them support. And then the only kind of um, mechanism to get them that support is through a um, involuntary um, hold, a 72 hour hold, that, that's the name of the book, and how there's this underground group of family members and advocates <laughs> trying to change the system so that some of these mechanisms don't have to be used. And um, I read the book and was so moved by it. Um, and I was trying to help my family 
you know, my, my family's great as far as understanding my mental health condition and you know, they never really thought anything about it per se. And when I say it that way, meaning to say for them, their belief was anything is possible, no matter what, meaning, you know, being born black in America, even though I wasn't born in America, but, <laughs> but technically I'm American, right? But being uh, born black in America means we have to think about those things like, um, you know, how do you interact with the police? You know, where do I sit in a classroom? Like, these are all the things that come part and parcel that you don't fly out of the womb knowing your family has to help you understand those things and teach you those things. And so, you know, their belief was no matter what kind of thing is put before my path, whether it be a health thing or a systematic injustice thing, that, um, you know, we can um, um, overcome some of these things, and and especially if we do it together. But, uh, you know, I really wanted them to have a better understanding of the work that I was doing, as well as, you know, what is a recovery journey, and that we weren't the only Black folks going through this. That um, there was a NAMI affiliate in my neighborhood, and in their neighborhood, we weren't living in the same state, they never would go. It was kind of like, no, 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 you know, we don't share this kind of stuff with, with people. This is sort of our internal family kind of discussion. And uh, when they came out to visit me, B.B. Moore Campbell was doing a book reading of 72 hour hold. And so I invited them to come to the reading and um, my parents were really, really moved. And it kind of helped that my mother's name is B.B. Oh. so that I could have the two B.B.'s meet. <laughs> so, uh, but it was really meaningful for them because they got to see themselves in her. And that's very powerful as Black folks to know that we are not in this alone, that there are other people who are going through the same experience as families, as people living with mental health conditions, and we can work and support each other as well as um, advocate for the system support and treatment that we need that is um, culturally aligned to um, kind of who we are as, as, as people. You know, I do want to ask one last question because I think it would be a shame if we didn't take this opportunity to help people think about careers in mental health, especially Black folk, Black and Brown folk. You said there was about 2% of psychiatrists are African-American. What the hey, hey, like we're not 2% of the population. So we are um, not. how can we um, help people think about interest in this profession? Well, there are a lot of ways. One way is through early exposure, mentorship programs. I still hold a faculty position as a professor at Charles Drew University, and it's one of the places that does what's called Saturday Science Academy, where they bring kids to campus to interact with doctors and nurses and other Mm -hmm. healthcare professions, where Mm -hmm. it's not just about making everybody into a little doctor, but it's about exposing them to health professions as a choice, because out in their neighborhoods, they may be seeing the people who are driving around in nice cars and wearing good clothes are not always doing things that are legal. So to show them and expose them to people who are professional and that education has a value. And if you stay in school, this is what you can have. And it also gives them the skills that they need to be able to do well in the sciences, the, the so-called math science. I forget the acronym for it. Those things STEM. that sometimes STEM, STEM, thank you. I'm lacking a bit. That, that this is something that you can do. And you can succeed at it and you can do well. And there are some good things like careers that can come out of it. I also know there are organizations like the Black Psychiatrists of America that support different students along the way to give them scholarships to be able to attend conferences. 
I know that the BPA also tries to do outreach to their local chapters. In fact, that was one of the places where I learned the most about Black culture. It wasn't from having trained at a majority institution in Westwood, but it was through going on trips with the BPA to places like um, Africa mm-hmm. and um, the Caribbean, where the diaspora is all over. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's people like me. That's one of the reasons why I was excited about your podcast, because it's a chance to get the word out there to people that, hey, we need more people. You know, I think for psychologists, it's also only about 2%. I think yeah. when you look at social work, it goes up to about 5%, but we're underrepresented. And there are a number of reasons for that. I think yeah. people coming out of medical school are often saddled with sometimes up to, you know, $40 million of debt or more. So for them to go into a specialty that isn't going to be making big bank may not be the most important thing, but look at longevity. You know, psychiatrists can practice well past the typical retirement age because it's not a physically demanding specialty. As long as you're cognitively sharp, you can sit down and talk to people and write prescriptions. You're not having to to stand up and make rounds a lot in the hospital unless you do that type of psychiatry. So it's a wonderful profession. And it's something that I think has been totally life-changing and life-enriching for me. It's so much a part of my identity. I think people think of me as a workaholic, but no, I'm a liveaholic and work is a part of my life. So you're a liveaholic and work is part of your life. Oh my God, I love that. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) a workaholic. I mean, I I do work a lot and I'm always kind of thinking I can't turn it off, but I do know that it's because I enjoy what I do. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy, you know, being in a position I'm fortunate enough to be able to influence the lives and careers of a lot of folks. And here at the county, we have 250 psychiatrists and we're always, always, because there's turnover, looking for more. And wow. we love to hire people that represent the communities that we tr- that we help. So to have folks from the whole range of the rainbow is really important. Well, I don't know that I can even top any of that other than thanking you for reminding us about the humanity and the humanness of uh, mental health conditions for people, that it's not you know, we're not our conditions, we're still people who are human, and uh, we want to engage, you know, and have relationships, we want to be heard um, as the patient. And you've really talked a lot about that. And the journey of recovery being a journey and not a destination, and encouraging different ways for folks to consider coming into the professions of uh, mental health and mental health support. So thanks for spending some time with me on this lovely afternoon. And uh, thank you for being an unapologetically Black unicorn. I will have to give you some unicorn ears. Um, I will anxiously await them. And thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It's always good to catch up with you, but this has been a very interesting chat and I hope that people will take some some information away from it. Me too. And I um, hope people will also tune in next week for more Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you, Dr. Bonds. Thank you, Chris.